But the final four chapters of Ezra bring us face to face with the man whose name is given to this book. Of those four chapters, two of them, seven and eight, are devoted to describing the man himself and the details of the journey that he took from Babylon to Jerusalem. It is only then in chapters eight, or sorry, chapters nine and ten, that we see anything really of the ministry that he discharged. So when we read these two chapters, seven and eight, it will be seen that the Lord attaches great importance to the preparation, to the readiness of his messenger and his servant. That's a fact that's seen throughout the Word of God that the Lord carefully prepares and equips his men, his instruments for the work that he purposes to do through them and accomplish in a fashion that will glorify God and will exalt His own Son. In the last message I preached from this series, we looked at this passage, chapter 7, verses 1 through to 10. And in those verses we find that there's a revelation given to us concerning Ezra as the right man in the right place at the right time. And in that message, having set it up, I looked with you at two points concerning this man, his descent in terms of his genealogy, the fact that he was born out of the tribe of Levi and in a priestly family, and then his diligence with regard to how he was so powerfully committed to what the Lord had given him to do, and diligently he set about that wonderful ministry that's described for us. Now in the remainder of chapter 7, And on into chapter 8, much more is set before us concerning Ezra and his ministry for God. These two chapters, therefore, can be summed up in a very simple way, a threefold way. You have in chapter 7, 1 to 10, the life of the servant. In verses 11 through to the close of this chapter, verse number 28, we have the letter of the king, because in these verses there is the record of a letter that was written by King Artaxerxes, authorizing Ezra to return from uh, from Babylon to Jerusalem, and also ensuring a supply of everything that was needed in order for the work that Ezra was to go to do. And then in the third place, in chapter 8, we have a biographical chapter. Now you have the log of the journey, the actual account or log of everything that happened, all that was involved in the removal of Ezra from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now when we study and when we look carefully at the content of these two chapters, 7 and 8, we will be amazed at how, as I've already intimated, at how the Lord prepared His servant and made the way forward for him in his ministry. And therefore, all that God purposed for Ezra regarding his removal from Babylon and his going to Jerusalem to lead the work there was smoothly and successfully accomplished. But there's one outstanding reason as to why everything did run smoothly and successfully. That is because of the hand of God being upon this man. Five times we read of that fact, the hand of the Lord was upon his servant, 
In addition, not only is there a direct statement five times to that effect, but we find Ezra's own testimony there in chapter 8, verse number 22. If you want to look at the verse, chapter 8, verse 22, and you will notice in the center of that verse these words, We had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him. And so you find that there's Ezra's testimony concerning the hand of the Lord being upon all those who seek the living God. A simple narrative, therefore, of these two chapters will show that the Lord's hand was on this man and upon those who were with him and upon the work that was being done. And that, of course, accounts for the measure of blessing and prosperity and all that God did in those days. It accounts for it because there's no other explanation for what happened but this, the hand of God was on His servant. And so in taking note of the hand of God in Ezra being the secret of the blessing and the progress that was made or that were made, it is surely important to determine what is meant by that expression, the hand of God. Now we know that it is a figurative expression because God is a spirit. He does not have body parts or passions as our own confession of faith says. And I would suggest to you that the hand of God is symbolic of the Holy Spirit and His power resting upon Ezra and upon the whole situation, giving this man the grace that he needed, the, the power that he, that he needed, the, the, the blessed success that followed as he labored for God, as he led the work, as he took it forward into other realms that had not yet been touched. It was because there was upon him the Spirit who is the hand of God and therefore symbolized in that expression the hand of the Lord. Now in Scripture we find that the hand of the Lord was on men, giving them a Spirit-filled ministry. We think, for example, I want to go through this with you here and just explain all this before we get into two main points this morning. We think, for example, of Elijah. In 1 Kings 18, 46, it says, The hand of the Lord was on Elijah. Elijah is known in Scripture as a man who served under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That's what accounted for his great ministry, his powerful ministry in the days of Ahab and Jezebel. It, he had the hand of the Lord upon him, and he was a Spirit-filled man. And then we find that the hand of the Lord is brought together with the Holy Spirit in the book of Ezekiel. We find the two terms conjoined in a certain verse or two in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 37 and verse number 1, it says this, The hand of the Lord was upon me, that's Ezekiel, and carried me out in the Spirit of the Lord. And so notice there that the hand of the Lord and the Spirit of the Lord are brought together it's not a repetition here of two different thoughts. Rather, it's the one line of thought that the hand of the Lord is symbolic of the Spirit of God and was upon Ezekiel and bore him along, carried him out. And therefore, everything here is attributed to the Spirit of God symbolized by the hand of God. The two are synonymous, really. We see that again in John the Baptist's ministry. 
In Luke 1.15, it was said that John the Baptist, before he was ever born, it was said that John the Baptist would be filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. And then in that same chapter of Luke 1, you come to the time when he's born. And that's over in verse number 66, the particular verse I want to mention, Luke 1.66. And it tells us there that the hand of the Lord was with him. And so again, there's proof that the hand of the Lord is a symbol, symbolic language for the Spirit of God. In Acts eleven twenty one, it is said that the hand of the Lord caused many to turn to the Lord. And that can only be a reference to the Holy Ghost. That's conversion, turning to the Lord. The very verb turn there is the same verb that is often translated to convert, souls, sinners being converted to the Lord. And it's the Holy Spirit who converts men. It's not the preacher. It's not the church. It's the Spirit of the living God. And it says that the hand of the Lord caused many to turn to the Lord. Acts eleven twenty one. We're going to go to that verse a little later. And so there is clear proof through the Bible. This is enough to notice that enables us to assert that Ezra was a man who had the Holy Ghost on him as he labored for the Lord. He was a Spirit-filled man. And this is the secret of the blessing and the power as a servant of God that he had, that he enjoyed. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. The hand of the Lord was upon him. This means that the only way in which the work of God has ever gone forward or ever will go forward is through the Spirit of God, the hand of the Lord being upon His people in the exercise of His irresistible power. As I say, I want to look now at two additional points, two main points that flow out of all that I've said And I want us to consider them as we think about what is taught here about the hand of the Lord and Ezra, his ministry, what took place. Number one, the hand of the Lord was on Ezra in answer to prayer. The hand of the Lord was upon Ezra in answer to prayer. I take you back to Ezra 8, verse number 22. It says, For I was ashamed to require the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him, but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. Now, look at this verse carefully, because the context of these words, the hand of our God is upon all them uh, for good that seek him, is important. We learn from this verse, this same verse, Ezra 8.22, that before they began their journey, Ezra and his colleagues had testified before Artaxerxes that all who seek the Lord would have God's hand upon them. Now they discover that there are enemies waiting for them, and we'll see more about that a little later. They're lying by the wayside. They want to, uh, they want to hijack all that is going on. And now discovering this, Ezra and his colleagues, having testified to the king that God's hand is upon those who seek him, are actually ashamed to ask an escort 
from the king. That's what verse 22 says. It's a very interesting, striking verse. Look at those words again. I was ashamed to require the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemies in the way. You see, the temptation was there. There was the thought in their minds, not having known this before, that there would be enemies awaiting them. There's a temptation in their minds now as they're about to start the journey to Jerusalem from Babylon. Maybe we need help. Perhaps we should ask the king for a band of soldiers. But you see, having already committed themselves through their own words that God's hand is on those who seek Him, well, they just can't do it now, can they? Uh, They would feel ashamed to do that. They would be embarrassed to go to the king You know, there's a great lesson to learn there, and that is we don't look to the state, we don't look to the king, we don't look to whoever to help us through our spiritual battles, our difficulties, our challenges, no matter what they may be in life as Christians or in the work of God in general, but rather we must realize that only God can help us And when we have the hand of God upon us, then that will take care of the enemy. And oh, you know, here are words that would need to be thought about very carefully today by all of us and by God's people in general. But for us here today, let us see this. Let us feel this. Let us feel the very shame or embarrassment of looking to man for help. When we have a God in heaven for whom there's nothing too hard to do, A God whom we serve, who, as Paul taught the Ephesians to pray, is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now, that does not mean that we don't use means and methods in the work of God or that we don't uh, look for uh, the well-being of the work of God in in a material sense. Of course, that is not what we're saying. But with regard to spiritual life and, and spiritual matters, it is only as the hand of God is upon us. But the words are here. They had said, the hand of God is upon all those that seek Him. Then look at verse number 23 of Ezra 8. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and He was entreated of us. You know, that's a step farther. They had said to Artaxerxes that the hand of God will be on us. You know, it's very easy to say that, isn't it? It's very easy to take the position and, and take the theological stance that When we pray, God will come, God will meet the need, God will uh, do what needs to be done. It's very easy to say that. But when the challenge comes, then you have to back up your words. And that's what happens in verse 23. They realize now they're up against it. And it says, So we fasted and besought our God for this. That is, for this situation. The enemy's there. They're lying by the wayside. How are we going to get through, etc.? And so they sought God. Brethren, it's good to be brought to the point where you're thrown back on the Lord, where you have to actually see God work. We make that claim. He is sovereign. We make that claim. He's all-powerful. We believe that. That's true. But it's one thing to say it's true. It's another matter to see it being demonstrated. 
to see the proof of it being realized and being evidenced in the work of God or in the life of the believer as an individual. And so that will only happen when we seek God as we are shown there in these wonderful words here in Ezra chapter 8 and the verse number 22 and number 23. Let me show you from the Word of God that the Lord Himself was anointed by the Spirit. The hand of God came on Him as He prayed. Turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 and the verse number 21, 22, and you have the record there of the Lord's baptism. And we read Luke 3, 21, and when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon Him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in Thee I am well pleased. Notice carefully that the hand of God, the Spirit of God, came on Christ as Christ prayed. Now, it had been predicted and promised that the Lord would be anointed by the Spirit. And you have multiple references in the, New, in the Old Testament to that fact. You think of, of, of Isaiah 11 and verse number 2. It says, And there shall come forth. There's a verse about the Lord's birth. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. And then it says this, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. You find the same in Isaiah 42 and verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. All these are predictive promises of the fact that the Lord Jesus would be full of the Spirit. One of the greatest is Isaiah 61 verse number 1 where it says the Spirit, these are the words of Christ Himself, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me. And my dear friend, those are promises. Those are predictive promises. And yet, the actual experience for Christ happened as He prayed. That little detail that Luke gives us is not given by Matthew. It's not given by the other gospel writers. It's only given by Luke, but how important it is. The experience of anointing came, the hand of the Lord descending on our Savior. It came as He prayed. Now, there's something vital that we need to notice here. The Lord Jesus prayed for this anointing as the one who was the appointed Messiah, as the one who was the Christ, and the very word Messiah, the Old Testament Hebrew word Messiah, and the New Testament word Christ or name Christ are synonymous. And they mean the anointed one. And so the Lord's name was a testimony to the anointing of the Spirit that was to come upon Him. And furthermore, when you begin to think through this, he was the appointed Messiah, the Christ, but also He was the appointed Redeemer as the Messiah, as the Christ. He has come to be the Redeemer of sinners. That's His great ministry. That's His great 
uh, a goal that he has in mind, the objective that's in the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son. It's that the Son will be the Redeemer of sinners. And therefore, the Lord Jesus Christ prayed for the Spirit as the one who had come to redeem sinners. And subsequently, therefore, He accomplished redemption in the power of the Holy Spirit with the hand of God upon Him. Peter, as he preached to the house of Cornelius, testified of that. He said in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, God hath anointed Jesus of Nazareth with power and with the Holy Ghost. And he went about and he and he executed his ministry. Peter goes on to say, and there you have it. There's the Lord. His entire ministry is exercised in the power of the Spirit. And my friend, that includes his death. There's the peak of the Lord's ministry. There is redemption coming to its actual fullest accomplishment as the Lord dies. And what do you read? You read in Hebrews 9, 14 that He offered Himself by the eternal Spirit, through the eternal Spirit, unto God, without spot, without blemish. And therefore, we learn from our Savior that the Lord Jesus prayed for the hand of God to be upon Him, the Spirit of God to be upon Him. There it is baptism. And He set out in His ministry, and He arrives at the cross, and He lays down His life, and He dies as He's anointed by the Holy Ghost. And He rose by the Spirit's power, quickened by the Spirit. And therefore, as we look at our Savior, we find that a redemption was accomplished as He was filled with the Spirit, the hand of God was upon Him, and for that He prayed. As I just complete that little thought there about the Lord accomplishing redemption as he was filled with the Spirit. I want to take you to Acts 11. I mentioned this verse, but please go to Acts 11 and look with me at verses 20 and 21. They are striking verses, and a couple more we'll go to as well in a moment, but Acts 11, verse number 20, and this is with reference to those who were persecuted by Saul of Tarsus, and the church was scattered in Jerusalem, and we're told this in verse 19, they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far, it mentions different places. Then verse 20, and it says at the end of that verse, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now listen to this. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned on to the Lord. What are you looking at there? You're looking at the application of redemption. And here you notice that these preachers, they go far away from Jerusalem. Persecution drove them where the Lord wanted them to be. And they're now in Antioch, up there in Syria. And they preach the Word, and the hand of the Lord is with them. What are they preaching? They're preaching the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is the message of the accomplishment of redemption by our Savior. And now those who preach that gospel have the hand of the Lord upon them, and many turn to the Lord. There's their conversion. There's the salvation of souls. And my friend, it is so easy to see. Let's see it today. That just as Christ prayed for the Spirit to come upon Him, and He came 
that he might accomplish redemption. So the early church prayed that the Spirit would come upon them, that they might be involved in the great work of the application of redemption to the hearts and lives of men and women, pagan souls, darkened sinners in those days, and it truly happened. But I mentioned another reference. I want you to go to 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And look with me at verse 5. And we know this verse well, don't we? And it's often quoted, and it's fine to quote it and pray over it and think about it and stand up for what it teaches. But look at the verse. For there is one God and one mediator, 1 Timothy 2, 5, between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now here we come to the accomplishment of redemption again, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Notice the combination of things there in verse number 6. There's the accomplishment of redemption. Christ gave himself a ransom. Then it says to be testified. That means preached. That means Proclaim, that's the application of redemption in the preaching of the Word, and it must be under the power of the Holy Spirit. And look at verse 7. Here's Paul's personal, personal, very personal connection with this truth. Whereunto I am ordained, what? A preacher. He mentions an apostle as well, but first and foremost, he puts in the word preacher. For unto I am a, a ordained a preacher. He was appointed a preacher in the context of the Lord's redemptive work. Christ gave himself a ransom, Paul says, and immediately says concerning that, I was appointed a preacher. Now, brethren and sisters, see this today. The, the Lord was the, the, uh, the one who accomplished redemption. He was a preacher too, of course. Paul and his colleagues and every true minister ever since. They are the men who take the Word, preach the Word for the application of redemption. But neither Christ nor the preacher of today can accomplish anything in the sense of God working unless the hand of the Lord is upon him. And the Spirit of God comes down. The apostles had the Spirit upon them an answer to prayer. I take a little farther here. There are many verses that we could see. Remember how the Lord said to the apostles, Tarry in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. The same in Acts 1. He said to him, Remain here in Jerusalem. This is during the 40 days before he goes back to heaven. Stay here and you'll be baptized according to the Father's promise, baptized with the Holy Ghost. And they met in the upper room and they prayed, as you find in Acts 1.14. And in answer to their prayers, they were filled with the Spirit. Acts 2, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those men. But if you look at Acts 4 for a moment, and here are verses that are remarkable. And we've often looked at this passage, and I have done that with you in preaching various times from these verses in Acts 4. But you know something perhaps of the context, Peter and John are told by the Sanhedrin, you're to stop preaching. You're not to preach anymore in that name or about that person, Jesus of Nazareth. That's the background. And so what do they do? They go to pray. From Acts 4, 23 onwards, you have a great prayer meeting. 
And notice what happens here. In verses 29 and 30, as they pray, notice what they say in prayer. Acts 4, 29. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. Now listen carefully. By stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child or holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were gathered together, assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Now in verse 23, they specifically asked the Lord to stretch forth His hand. That's the Spirit. And then in verse 31, That has seemed to be the case because there you read that when they had prayed, they were filled with the Holy Ghost. The same men as in Acts 2, they're filled a fresh time, another time in Acts 4. But what I'm showing you is that their prayer focused on the back or focused on the hand of the Lord being stretched forth to work mightily, and then they're filled with the Spirit, and the great works of God go on and go forward. And so, I show you through the Scriptures how the fact is true that Ezra, uh, the hand of the Lord came upon Ezra in answer to prayer. It happened with the Lord. It happened with the apostles and brethren and sisters. It has never happened at any point in history. It doesn't matter the extent of what uh, takes place or or who the man is or or what uh, work is done, but there never has been a moment in history where this has not been the case. This has not changed. This is God's will. And therefore, if you and I are to know the hand of God on us and on this work and on preachers who occupy, whether it's this pulpit or any of our pulpits or among brethren of of light precious faith, it will only happen as we pray and we lay hold on God and the Holy Spirit comes as We've seen in these verses, and keep that thought in mind. Don't lose. If you don't remember anything else today, remember this, that the Spirit is the great applier of redemption. Therefore, He must come on those who preach redemption. He must come on every servant of God. Be that a preacher in the pulpit, a Sunday school teacher, a children's worker, or any Christian out there in the workplace any day, and you speak a word for the Lord, you give out a tract, you try to be a witness, you live for the Lord, you need the Holy Ghost, brother or sister. You must have the Spirit on you. This is God's Word. There's no difference anywhere in the Bible concerning this. It's the same the whole way through. Let me take you back to Acts here for a moment. Because I want you to notice, as we see that the hand of the Lord was upon Ezra in answer to prayer, he said himself, the hand of God is upon all them for good that seek him. I want you to notice the earnestness of the praying that took place. And I briefly do this to your attention, but just look at it again, please. Verse 23, So we fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us. And what do you find here? You find that the word fasted is brought together with praying. It says, we fasted and besought our God. The word besought is referring to prayer, obviously. 
And so they prayed earnestly, they prayed fervently, and what we find is that the fervency of it is underlined by the fact that they fasted. Now, let me ask you a question. What's your view? What will make you think? What's your view of fasting? It's a wide subject. There are religions across the face of the earth, and they all believe in fasting. Rome believes in fasting. Pagan religions believe in fasting. But why? What does the Bible have to say about fasting? What does it actually mean? Well, in those religions I've mentioned, Romanism, which is a false religion, or paganism in general, they fast because they believe that as a result of spending a certain amount of time supposedly fasting, then whoever they worship will be pleased with them and will give them eternal life. So they fast in order to please their deity and gain merit and gain some kind of approval. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. You know, the Pharisees fasted. They were fastidious fasters. They fasted all the time uh, uh, in terms of a regular pattern. But it didn't give them one iota of merit with God. You remember the Pharisee going into the temple and he, he actually brought it into his prayer about giving and fasting and he thought that God's bound to be so pleased with me he had no knowledge of his sin. He had no knowledge of his consciousness of his guilt. And he believed that uh, fasting along with his giving of his offerings and so on, uh, and, so, and all of that paraphernalia that he goes over, that that gave him a standing with God, but not, not a bit. The Lord said to uh, his disciples concerning the whole scene, focusing on the publican, I tell you, this man, that's the publican, went down to his house justified rather than the other. The Pharisee left the house of God the very way he came in, a guilty sinner with all his religion, lost and undone. Now, so I haven't time to go into this much more now, but it's a big subject, fasting. But what does it mean when we read that they fasted and besought God here in Ezra 8, 23? It means this, their praying was accompanied by fasting, but the fasting was not a bare ritual. Rather, the fasting was the mark of the intensity of, uh, that, uh, that they felt within their souls, the fervency with which they prayed, and it also was the, the, uh, an awareness that when they sought God in that fervent way, then nothing else mattered not even their bellies, to put it plainly. They lost all awareness of other appetites. Their only appetite was a spiritual appetite. We need to meet with God. We need to get through to God. And all else was forgotten. Now, there's nobody who can live without eating. Let me make that absolutely clear. And let me say to you that there's always a danger inherent in an announcement. We're going to have a day of fasting and prayer. 
Because even Christians can think that, well, if we can endure those, that day or whatever the length of time it might be, if we can endure that day, we'll not, we'll not be able to eat and, and we'll be hungry and we might not feel great. But if we can get through that, God will be so pleased with us and revival will come. Let me tell you, my friend, that is a load of nonsense. Absolute nonsense. What is fasting? Fasting emerges naturally when a people be, uh, seek their God. So much so as they seek their God, they forget about the fact that there's food to be eaten or there's rest to be taken. They're so taken up with God, they're so inclined toward Him. As I said, the physical appetites recede into the background. And they can go on with God for hours. And it's not a ritual, it's not a work of merit with God. It's simply the fact that they're so taken up with the Lord that everything else fades away. That's what the Bible means by fasting and prayer when they're brought together. And we've got to learn that. This is not a mechanical exercise. This is not something that the church announces and says we've got to do this. And everybody, well, I will guarantee you, well, if you heard that, if we announce that for next Sunday, Christmas Day, we're going to come together to fast and pray, you would not like it one bit because the flesh would rebel. And I just use that day for it's very appropriate. The flesh would rebel. And you'd say to yourself, why not some other Sunday? You see, that betrays the fact that the flesh does not like to give time to God. It does not like to be denied the gratifying of its appetites. As I said earlier, we do need to eat. There were people who fasted themselves to death, and that was... That was so tragic, and they still do that. God does not expect that. But this is what this is all about. We're taken up with God. We're taken up with the seriousness of the situation, the need of the land, the need of souls, whatever it might be. And we have, yes, the Bible calls for set times of prayer. And we get in, into the place of prayer, and we lay hold on God, and the Lord comes down. And the Spirit falls upon our hearts so much so that you can forget your hunger. You can forget your tiredness. And may I say that this is a testimony of many of the choice saints of God. They may be gone to a prayer meeting tired, weary, hungry, but the Lord comes down and they find that their souls are elevated and they can stay there for whatever the time might be. I'm not going to mention anything with regard to time. It doesn't really matter. Whatever the time might be, they can stay praying because the Lord has come down. And their physical appetites, as I say, just fade away. And then you get home from the crimmage and you get a big feed. Isn't that right? But during the time of prayer, you forget all about it. And let me say to you today, that's the kind of thing, experience, that happened in the days of Ezra. The hand of the Lord was sought. He besought God for this. 
They realize we need God's hand on us. They've already given that testimony. And we need it ha to happen. And we've testified to that, have we not? We have told the world around us. We have told other churches. We believe in prayer. We believe that God is omnipotent. He can do anything. And now, my dear friend, we're in a situation in our land where we need God to show Himself. And it's all very well to say we believe this, that, and the other thing. It's all great to stroke the T's and dot the I's of our theology. Are you prepared to give yourself to seeking God for the hand of the Lord to come down? Are you? Am I? I ask myself. Because I want to tell you from this pulpit today, we desperately need the hand of God on our church, on our land, on the wicked society around us, on the diabolical developments. It is grieving to the depths of our hearts when we have a Secretary of State who talks about a high level of a high quality of health care for women who want to murder their children. And that's what he said. A high quality. And that has got to come home to us. How will this ever be changed? Unless God comes down, it will grow worse and worse and worse. I'm not going to get to my second point, but that's fine. But there's one reference I want to take you to before I close here. Turn to Luke 11, please. Luke 11, verse 5. And you know Luke 11, many of you, and you've read it and you've heard it preached, and it's a wonderful chapter about prayer, and especially persisting in prayer. And from verse 5 of Luke 11 to verse number 8, the Lord brings that little parable that underlines persistence in prayer. And so you have that. And, and then you find that the Lord stresses the need out of that parable for, as I say, persistence or importunity in prayer. And He gives the great promise in verse 13 of the Holy Ghost been given to those that ask God. There it is again, asking God. But then if you go on here in this passage, go down please to verse 20. And notice what the Lord says, If I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so we've been thinking about the hand of the Lord or the hand of God, and now we read of the finger of God. But I want you to notice it's in the context of the Lord's teaching about the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit coming in answer to the importune prayers of the Lord's people. He then comes to this issue of the finger of God, and he's talking here in verse 20. And this is what you've got to see. If I, with the finger of God, cast out devils. What's he talking about in that verse? He's talking about the war, the holy war between the devil and God, or God and the devil. And through gospel preaching and power by the Lord, that kingdom of the devil being smitten. That's what he's referring to in verse 20. 
And so he says, if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's teaching there, and there, brethren and sisters, that the finger of God is the Spirit of God. And all we need is for God to lift His finger, so to speak. It doesn't even have to be His hand. And this is how the Bible shows us that just a very, very little of the power of God is all we need. And the devils, the demons, are conquered. Where else do you read of the finger of God? I want to show it to you as I close. Exodus chapter 8. Please turn to Exodus 8 and verse 18. Exodus chapter 8, verse 18. And the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice. And these is, we're, we're, we're entering in here to the passage that deals with the plagues that came in Egypt. <clears throat> and you know that with regard to some of the plagues, the magicians of Egypt, and, and by the way, the magicians of Egypt are not to be thought of as the kind of magicians we hear about today, abracadabra and all that nonsense. The magicians of Egypt were sorcerers who were in touch with the devil. That's what the word magician means. And so you will find with some of the plagues that they, God permitted them, the magicians of Egypt, to do what Moses was doing. But then it stopped. So here we have it. Exodus 8, 18. The magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. Then verse 19. Then the magician said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. What a statement. The very, the very magicians, the sorcerers, these wicked men of Egypt realized we were able to do this and this and this and copy Moses. That's part of the devil's work, you know, to imitate God. But there comes a point where God will stop it. And they could go no farther. And their confession actually was, this is the finger of God. That's the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost stopped them in their tracks. And there's where I see the hope for our day and times. The finger of God. Do you know that Paul refers to this? I said it was the last reference, but I want to show you this, and you'll, you'll benefit from it. Just quickly, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, please, and, and look with me in this chapter, that chapter where Paul describes the last days and what will happen. And if you look with me at verse 8 and then verse 9, you'll get the connection, and with this we close. 2 Timothy 3, verse 8, Now as Jannes and Jambres withstood Moses. Isn't that fascinating? Here are the names of two of the magicians of Egypt. They're none named in Exodus, but the Holy Spirit names these two in the New Testament. Jannes and Jambres withstood Moses. As they did that, Paul says, So do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. You know why God allowed the magicians of Egypt to do 
what Moses had done. It was to bring them to the point where they believed they could do anything that God did. And then the finger of God stopped them and they looked like fools. That's what Paul's teaching here. It says, the end of verse verse 9, their folly shall be manifest unto all men as theirs also was. Wouldn't it be a great day when the Lord makes a fool out of these characters by stopping them? They think they can do what they like, say what they like, and so forth. But take hope, dear Christian. The Lord, yes, I don't know when it will be, but He will stop them. It may not be in our lifetime. It may not be ever in the history of this old world, but He will stop them one day when He comes again. He will stop them, and they will go no farther. And therefore, let us pray that God will come. The hand of the Lord upon His church in answer to prayer, the Holy Spirit, in other words, coming in all His fullness, working for the glory of our God. Let us bow before the Lord. Let us unite our hearts in prayer. Lord, we give Thee thanks today for the Word that we have considered what it says to us. O Lord, help us. We need Thy hand upon us. And help us to pray, help us to pray that the Spirit will be poured out and that Thy hand will be at work and that evil might be stopped in its tracks and God glorified. Abide with us. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Spirit be with all of Thy people this day and forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name.